0: I mentioned this last week, if you want to get a one-volume Bible commentary, this is the one. It's accessible to the popular uh, readership, and it's one of the volumes in the HarperCollins uh, uh, series about the Bible. And uh, most of the people who contribute are from the um, American uh, Bible, or the Society of Biblical Literature, which is very substantial. And here's the companion, called the HarperCollins Bible Dictionary. So anybody who's interested in expanding their knowledge about the Bible would be well served by these two books. Uh, I highly recommend them, and they're available at uh, Amazon or other places uh, online without any difficulty. So I read the readings this week, and I also thought about this. I never preach about the collect, which is the opening prayer the the presider prays at the mass. Collect, from the Latin word collecta, to gather. It's a way of sort of focusing the assembly's attention on what it is we're going to be doing thematically that Sunday. Because we're on a three-year cycle of readings, though, sometimes the collect appears more Uh, uh, appropriate than in another year when maybe the readings don't quite fit. But I thought about the the Collect because it it today uh, says some things to us about God's uh, mercy, about joining God in our uh, spiritual pilgrimage, about the importance of seeking the heavenly treasure. And uh, you and I, understanding that we live... uh, In an abundant world, which is a hard sell, particularly under the present circumstances, but it's the truth, and uh, we may be in these readings today have some indication of the ways and the means that you and I uh, reflect back to each other uh, this abundant life, this heavenly treasure because you know the only way you and I have of appropriating these great and powerful truths are through the commonplace activities of our own lives we have no other way to do that and preachers do you a disservice if they tell you that you have to go to some cloud cuckoo land place to understand uh, how to be a christian person it isn't going to work can't do it so i have some questions the one is what in the world are we doing Reading from the book of Esther. So we'll talk a little bit about Esther. Then we'll talk about James, who is focusing our attention on why we all ought to be a praying community and how we might understand that. And finally, the gospel is it an invitation by the Savior to self mutilation? Or is he at, is he trying to get to something that maybe uh, is in the opening part of the gospel, as opposed to his hyperbolic comments that follow? All right. So we'll say a little something about that. This is the only time that we read in the lectionary from the Book of Esther in the Eucharistic le- lectionary. Uh, Esther comes up in the daily office very occasionally. I mentioned to you last week that Esther is the only uh, book of the Hebrew Bible that was not found at Qumran with the Dead Sea Scrolls. All the Dead Sea Scrolls of the biblical books, there are lots of non-canonical writings there, but all of the biblical books of the Old Testament were there uh, except the book of Esther. And what that says is that Esther did not loom large to that community and was not considered important either in their liturgical life or in, the, in their understanding of the, the species of Judaism, we would call it now, that they um, express. So that's just a footnote that you can tell somebody. Remember, the Dead Sea Scrolls are important not because they give away some big secret, but because they affirm and tell us more about the Hebrew Bible. They tell us about the paleography of the Hebrew language, how Hebrew writing evolved over time. They tell us something about the accuracy of the transmission of the biblical text, because up until 1947, the most ancient uh, texts of the Old Testament we possessed were dated 1,000 A.D push you back into about 300 B.C. So you have some idea of the transmission of the text, and you also have some idea of what people were thinking in the time of Jesus, in what we now call Judaism. So that's why those things are important. So here's why we read from the book of Esther, I think, Today. First of all, from the Harper Bible Commentary, Esther recounts how a series of happy coincidences allied with the courage and wisdom of the Jewish woman, Esther, so successfully averted the threat that not a single Jewish life was lost. The threat was that all the Jews in Persia in about 460 BC were going to be annihilated. And as the result of her good work with the king, and Mordecai's integrity. By the way, the reader pronounced Mordecai at 8 o'clock today as Mordici. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, yeah, is that the little size, like a little (laughs) Mordidella? So, but you know, and King Ahasuerus uh, is probably King Xerxes, in Greek. And he lived around 464 in that period uh, in Persia. Now, this reading is the one that gives, in Judaism, uh, the biblical support for the creation of the festival of Purim, which is the thanksgiving that the Jews have every year for not being annihilated. And you can imagine that this took on some uh, significance after World War II, wouldn't you think? this particular feast. So uh, it is important in that way. Why we read it as Christian people, sometimes I should say some things to you about the use of the Old Testament in the New. There there are two mutually contradictory things here that are important. Uh, There are many Jews and many even Christians now who wonder why in the world we read the Old Testament uh, in light of the New. And what would happen if you just read it as though that was it? There was no New Testament, right? So there's some people who have pushed that for a long time, and now the pendulum is swinging back, and we understand that clearly those people who followed Jesus and heard his words and saw his works said that we see in our own sacred literature that we possess now, if we'd have read it with greater care, we would have seen that in his ministry we see manifest in a human being all the promises of God that we as the people of the covenant understand are part of who we are. So it's not an irresponsible intellectual or chauvinistic thing to say that for Christians we read the Old Testament in a way that perhaps Jews do not and others do not. But we do. So as my theology professor at Neshota said, there it is. (laughs) (laughs) Right? In any case, the reason Esther is read, uh, again from the commentary is, the reason we read it is that it can be seen as encouragement to those who see themselves threatened by hostile oppressors, And on the other hand, teaches those who wield authority over the weak how contemptible they are in the eyes of the powerless. So I would guess for people like us, many of you have great responsibilities and supervisorial roles and the opportunity to use the authority that you have, either in a good way or in a way that is not life-giving. So how do you do that with integrity? And when we read from the Old Testament like that, maybe those are some of the questions that we want to ask uh, about this. The book is written in such a way that says, in in, in an almost idealistic way, that Esther's beauty, Mordecai's integrity, Esther's wisdom, was responsible for swaying the king against Haman, who was the engineer of this potential annihilation. And shouldn't you and I always be on the side of beauty, wisdom, and integrity? And that's really stuff that we can put in our hands, isn't it? It's not something out there in a hugely idealistic way. We are at the end of the reading from James, the Epistle of James. We've read through it now, and we're in chapter 5, and we read the conclusion of the epistle today. And James is talking about praying for the suffering, for suffering people to pray. And we have in here a biblical warrant uh, in the churches that have the sacramental life, like the Episcopal Church, for the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. And so here's some biblical support for that practice. At St. Luke's, we do this every week on Wednesday mornings at 10 o'clock. Where we uh, do the sacrament of the anointing in the context of the Eucharist, and I know that when I go to the hospital, I know, and uh, I always bring an oil stock, and if it's opportune, I anoint the person who, who is there in the hospital. It used to be a long time ago, and certainly in the Roman Catholic Church until the Second Vatican Council, that uh, anointing meant the last rites. priest <laughs> shows up? Father, I'm not feeling as bad as the, I might look. <laughs> Viaticum. Mm-hmm. So it, it isn't that way. In both in, in, in the Roman church and in our church, we have re- restored this practice to its uh, uh, traditional place. And James is talking about that. But more to the point, I read this as a commercial message for the power and the importance of prayer. I'm not going to talk today about prayer in any detail, or maybe some of you may be wondering how come my prayers haven't been answered. That's for another time, right? Whether or not we understand God as the great wish granter in the sky, or what the nature of prayer is in terms of holding everybody uh, up to God and close to our hearts in a way that uh, can be healing and life-giving. And that's what James is speaking of in terms of his own church's pastoral experience and all the churches who read this general letter whose uh, common life was very similar. I was very honored last Sunday, uh, St. Luke's allowed their space to be used for the dinner, a dinner, for the companion diocese, for... Uh, that we have in a relationship that we have now established with uh, the Diocese of Western Tanganyika and the Diocese of Gloucester in England. And both the bishops from those dioceses were here together with their entourages, if that's the right, a word, and then the people in the diocese who were responsible for bringing them here. Um, and I want to thank Deacon Boyer if he's sitting there because he engineered a lot of this and it went very, very well indeed. When they arrived, uh, the dinner was sort of getting organized. And our bishop, Bishop Mary, decided that they might need a cook's tour of the, of the facility here. And so uh, I took them into the church. And we talked about the church and so on. And uh, they, after the tour, they were filtering back here uh, uh, for, for some refreshments before dinner and I had some private time with Bishop Michael who of the uh, Diocese of Gloucester and we were walking in the columbarium and then we walked back through the church and uh, he, he said to me you know I need to tell you that uh, when I was in the church I felt this was a building that had been prayed in a lot And you can't pay a pastor of a congregation any higher compliment than to say the church is being prayed in. It isn't always so. And that's thanks to all of you who come here and do that and pray. And the atmosphere uh, uh, is, is present. And uh, I was very grateful for his insight and for him making that remark to me about it. He was very impressed by that. And um, his canon for development comes from the high side of things. And he said, this is my kind of church. <laughs> so as, the, as, a, as a woman many years ago when I was a young priest in Tucson, Arizona, came out the door and said, well, you know, Father, some prefer it high. <laughs> You bet. So, this is a commercial message for praying, you know, and for its importance and its power. There's something in here about going after the, the, the lost or the strayed. I take that line to mean uh, the opportunity that you and I have. Episcopalians don't like to do this, of course. But how we commend our greatest place of safety and assurance to other people. And I say to you over and over again, the best way to be an evangelist is to be able to reflect back to others the practical wisdom that you have learned about life, about being a human being, which has enormous spiritual significance and converting power. And you don't always need to use a specific religious vocabulary in order to accomplish this. Though you ought not to be able to shrink from saying that uh, in this man's words and in this man's works we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. So prayer and its power. In the gospel today we have uh, two things put together in a way, but it, they all seem to work. Mark did this. Remember when we read the gospels... We're reading three things that are important. What Jesus said, what the people who heard him heard, and what the people who uh, are the community that wrote the gospel means, updated. Right? The good news, updated. So Mark is the earliest gospel in the New Testament, and it dates from between 65 and 75 A.D., So that's about 30 to 40 years after the uh, Christ event, as biblical scholars would say, right? So the circumstances in the community have now uh, been living into the pastoral realities of people who've been in and gone away and people who have uh, started to get interested in this and plural ways in which Christians have understood what they do when they get together and how they organize themselves and all of these things. So John says to Jesus, they come a, came across a man who was casting out demons in his name. Should we tell him to stop? He is not one of us. So Jesus says, don't know, don't stop him, uh, and whoever is not against us is for us. And then he goes on in a rather extreme comment about how it is that we are to uh, be concerned about those who may not be one of us. And his extreme language is usually interpreted as uh, what somebody should do to control themselves from their impulses, the temptations that they have of one kind or another. Uh, Urban Tigner Holmes, my pastoral theology professor for a while at the Shoda House, the warm sieve. <laughs> That's what we're protecting ourselves from, right? And so in that regard, uh, we are not thinking about the temptations that we all have to say who's in and who's out, he's not one of us, that sort of thing, you know. And what he's speaking of today in the most extreme terms is that that behavior is to be avoided and that we always err on the side of generosity. You know, in a funny way, the collect may have something to do with this because there are also stewardship implications here. The heavenly treasure is the idea that that God's abundance knows no limit, and that when we speak about the abundant life, we speak about it in material terms, but we also speak about it in spiritual and emotional terms that you receive the ability to create the interior dispositions to be able to rise to the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you on a regular basis. And because you feel some sense of fullness, uh, you are now in a position to more easily be generous. And the generous impulse can have uh, an enormous positive effect on how you live, you know? The willingness to extend and the willingness to be uh, uh, generous with uh, understanding that maybe, just maybe, we can hear some real truth from an unauthorized source. This is very risky to say because it seems the natural thing, doesn't it, to say, well, you know, uh, you don't have to be from an authorized source to reflect back to the world uh, the power of God's work in the lives of people. And we believe that. Sometimes <laughs> it becomes so uh, unreflective, however, that it's uh, a little bit difficult to uh, always accept all of that. We need to be, to, to also never suspend our critical powers. I've mentioned this many times to you. What, what people who study the brain have learned is that our emotions and our thinking are simultaneous. So we tend to separate out these things, right, how we feel and how we think. And so sometimes, uh, for many, many years in this country, feeling has been valued over thinking. And they need to really function simultaneously, so you need to reflect about what you're feeling. And you need to understand how important that is in the process of coming to understand the nature of reality. So Jesus is suggesting to the disciples that uh, they need to be open to seeing God's work uh, with people who are not one of them. And what that means maybe in Mark's gospel and certainly in Matthew's gospel was some of us are Jews and now we've got all these Gentiles in here. Matthew was was in a synagogue, a a Jewish Christian synagogue that was now 80% Gentile. And he was a Jew. So what do you do when you're in the 20 percent and believe your tradition has always told you that you're the one that is in. So what about all these 80 percent? You know? How do we understand that? So that could mean also for Episcopalians, for example we have our own sort of uh, obscure ways of doing things and practices and ways of seeing the world and we can either be high horsey about that or kind of look down our nose at people who are simply clueless (laughs) right or we can be generous and say you know uh, that'll come with time maybe and you may be more interested in some things I think the greatest shock to me, one of the most disillusioning things that ever happened to me was When I first became an Episcopalian, I I couldn't understand why everybody wasn't an Episcopalian. (laughs) I was absolutely floored that that was not the case. And the things that attracted me and drew me to Anglicanism initially uh, to me were very compelling. And I thought all you needed to do was show this to people and they will fall into this like (laughs) no tomorrow. And I discovered something like, yeah, oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) What? So that was sort of a rude awakening, wasn't it? And I also discovered that many of those people had deep and um, uh, awesome spiritual lives. So perhaps that was (laughs) important to know too. So, this week, think about beauty, wisdom, and integrity. Think about, if you're in a position of authority, how you use it with those who are um, subservient or weak. Uh, Think about prayer and its importance. You don't have to be a professional prayer to be successful at this. What I do, if somebody calls me on the phone or tells me that someone is sick and to pray for them, sometime in the day when I'm here, I go up into the church and I go over to the Either the Mary uh, shrine or the statue uh, or the icon of Jesus the teacher. And I light a candle and I say the Lord's Prayer. That's what I do. And say the name of the person that I'm praying for. So I've sort of covered it, right? <laughs> I'm not making light of it. It's a way of making a present that reality but it isn't getting into some deep prayer where I have crafted some kind of, you know. It's holding them up to God and close to your heart, which is what we all ought to do one for another, and that's what James suggests. And also, finally, uh, see if you can do a little better with who's in and who's out. (laughs) And think about generosity, and think about uh, seeking the heavenly treasure. And remember, uh, the collect says something to us, a version of, whenever God's judgment and God's mercy collide, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. And the prayer says that we should ask God uh, for all the grace that we can get because it's there already. So see if you can uh, know that and own that. Amen. 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 Cafe.